Dorsey Show. Joining us as always on Tuesday's podcast, Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter, the regent of redstate.com. <laughs> I, I just love that region of redstate.com. Yeah, well, that's, that's wonderful. Uh, people start calling me Reg. <laughs> there you go, Reg. Uh, or you can just call him Andrew um, because yeah, that's his name. Well, that's true. So lots of stuff to discuss today. we got a great column from Andrew over at redstate.com. Uh, let's start off uh, just quickly in Ukraine. Um, uh, it doesn't look like the Russians are doing very well, but it doesn't look like the Russians are recognizing that they're doing very well. Um, and this is going to set us up for, for a couple of different topics here in this in this half hour. But just really quickly, as of Monday afternoon when we're doing this, I mean, what's, what's your take on um, the coverage of Ukraine? Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned last week that I thought the combat coverage was kind of naive. Um, and I think you're right. With a little experience, it's gotten somewhat better. But um, it's it's disappointing to me. Of course, we're only getting it from one side. So you're only seeing almost all dead Russians and blown up Russian equipment. Uh, and then the, uh, uh, the bomb side of apartment buildings in Ukraine and so on. It's, um, it's so sad. And now that reporters have finally got to Poland uh, at the border, we're seeing refugees uh, coming across the blown up bridges. And yeah. uh, it's very reminiscent of sad war scenes that we've seen all too often in the past. Um, and I know Biden can't get us involved militarily. I hope that secretly we're doing stuff to, uh, to help Ukraine, um, at the very least, getting some non-uniform ghosts in there to study what the Russians are doing or failing to do and finding out their weak points of, the, of that equipment that keeps getting blown up. Um, so we learn a little bit from this um, in exchange for our uh, military equipment that's coming too late. You know, it, 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 but it, it, to, to put a political overlay on it, it doesn't help Biden to not get in trouble over sending troops in. I'm, right. not, suggesting, yeah. I'm not suggesting we send troops in, but the, the pathos of of a war zone of good people and an elected democracy under attack from the Russians while we just stand there with our arms crossed and go, oh, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. Um, uh, here's some guns. It's just, it, I think it makes him look weak uh by look weak and of course then he goes off on another little mini vacation it's just uh it's not a strong president and that's what prompted me to write about the column that column subject this week but it, it, the whole thing is and and then you see uh, boris johnson speak in parliament boy he yeah. talks real he talks real good uh, well, this is get this does get into your column, right? The fact that um, you know Joe Biden just simply uh, let's I'll put it 
I'll put it politely and I'll let you drive the point the rest of the way home. This is sort of like just starting the, the little wood screw in the, in the frame. And then you're going to bring the impact driver and just <laughs> plunge. I think it doesn't look like his, it doesn't look like he is meeting the moment. Um, <laughs> Joe no, Biden is meeting no. the moment here. No, it's not. He's, He's lost. I said, I, I said in the column, well, the, I think the headline in the column was it's a scary fact. Joe Biden is not all there and nobody's doing anything about it. I guess a couple of senators have said, well, you know, we should bring in the 25th Amendment. But uh, yeah, well, and that's it, not Congress's job to bring in the 25th Amendment. That's that's the cabinet and the vice president who, who yeah, does that yeah, anyway. But, yeah. but uh, it's it's not going to happen. Um, it's just I said that Biden's he's always been a talker, okay, and, and before he was had access to the nuclear launch codes, it was kind of cute. The guy would be a little goofy and he'd swear in public, and he's like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. But now the guy's in charge allegedly, and a lot of people don't believe he really is that there's other people pulling strings that we don't know about in the background and so his musings take on a maniacal tone of there's no point to them he's just he's talking at their mental meanderings that go nowhere and uh we've had 14 months of this now We've had some real policy screw ups like Afghan exit and failing to get the pandemic under control and inflation being just a blip, except now it's a year old and gas prices are the highest it's been since. Oh, look, the election year for Obama and Biden. It, it's something that comes around whenever you get all these electric car people that want to drive the price of gas up. So you have to buy an electric car. He just looks. Well, like the headline said, not all there. Well, he looks lost. I mean, even if you're even if you're not interested in pursuing the cognitive difficulties, right, or the alleged cognitive difficulties of Joe Biden, the fact is is that he doesn't have a lot of energy. I mean, we're what about a week out now from the State of the Union address, right? And uh, I'm not sure you and I actually had a chance to, to discuss the State of the Union address. Um, as as I have remarked a couple of times since then, this is a, a speech which is primarily watched by supporters of the president and masochistic bloggers. Um, <laughs> me being one of them, I did watch it live. Um, so, so that readers don't have to watch. Exactly. Um, so they can just follow me on Twitter and, and all my little snarky comments and and enjoy that instead of having to actually watch this uh, this anachronistic imperial spectacle that has no business being in a. I'm sorry, I'm on my soapbox again. But I mean, there's, you know, he delivered a speech. It was meandering, but I think it was written meanderingly too, for that matter. And it was, I mean, it was a laundry list speech. It was your basic State of the Union speech. Even the part that was halfway decent on Ukraine really didn't have anything to say of substance. There was a lot of platitudes about supporting, you know, the Ukrainians. They had the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States there, and that was a very uh, good emotional moment. And so, I mean, you've got all these sort of rhetorical trappings, but nothing of substance was said in any of this speech. And wow. and it looked like, for most of it, Joe Biden was either 
just sort of going through the motions of reading the speech off the teleprompter or acting angry <laughs> in, in as a sort of a substitute for for passion or connection. And yeah. then at the very end, and Andrew, I got to ask you what the hell this meant. At the very end, you know, you say, God bless, you know, the United States of America, God bless Americans. You know, you go, you go through all those things. It's, it's said differently by every president, but it's basically the same litany that finishes a state of the union address. And then at the very end, he adds, go get him." <laughs> yeah. Well, see that. Yeah. That's another example of what? Yeah, I mean, in his mind, which I happen to think is addled, but in his mind, that was kind of a, a really a little bit different kicker. And the rest of the world is like, what? But nobody does anything, you know? I mean, the, the media that, that doesn't love him, but they, they, they're afraid to hurt him, they just lay it out there. And the rest of us look at it and go, um, didn't we give constitutional protections to these media guys? And they're not being a watchdog at all. They're just being a, a transcript. Uh, and this guy is, well, he looks creepy, um, but he's acting creepy. Uh, I mean, he does things like my grandfather, uh, who uh, rest his soul, had um, hardening of the arteries. Uh, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, at, at, at one point, he's, you know, an old guy on the porch, whittling, telling me stories about his childhood in the late 1800s. And in the next moment, he's a junkyard Doberman from the Bronx because he doesn't, he's not aware. He's not aware of himself anymore. Right. And then an hour later, because his wife forced him to, he comes and apologizes but he doesn't know what he's apologizing for. He's not aware. And uh, I think an, uh, enough Americans have gone through that in their own family to read it and then to be told, well, don't believe your lying eyes. It's, and, and there's nobody in authority positions to, to do anything about it, to say, um, you know, we need an understanding. We need to have this man explain or someone explain. But then you see Biden uh, pause uh, to go to answer questions from reporters. And his wife comes and leads him away by the hand like a child in the grocery store. Uh, you know, she did that. Remember, he started to speak at, the, at a White House uh, back lawn uh, event. And the band was playing. He just started to speak about, well, it's nice to be. And his wife came and took him away by the hand. Right. And and nobody but people like you and me were watching. And we say to each other, wait a minute, this this isn't this isn't normal. And um, there was a poll. Uh, the uh, issues and insights guys who are really good, by the way, uh, if you're not getting their morning briefing, it, uh, it's worth it. Uh, they have a poll that they, that they put out and, it's, and it points out that most Americans think that this um, uh, Ukraine in event was invited 
by Biden showing his weakness in the Afghan debacle. Yeah. No, I, and I think that that's, I think that's at least uh, one of the one of the the guideposts by which Vladimir Putin decided to press this issue right now. But you know, going back to that State of the Union address, and and in relation to your column, what I was really struck by was how disconnected Joe Biden seemed from the political reality. I mean, yeah. again, we're not going to talk about. I mean, we've already talked about the cognitive issues, but I'm just talking about a president whose uh, job approval rating has been collapsing, who's clearly um, not resonating with American voters, who's suffered through two or three major legislative losses in um, in Congress over the last couple of months. And the speech itself was basically an argument for passing the two bills... <laughs> that that have already lost in congress and it's a it's a stay this stay the course speech that might have been appropriate for a president who is writing around 55 percent in job approval ratings right it was the same campaign platform that he's adopted since he took office and it has pro proven incredibly unpopular and yeah. i i was really struck in this speech about he didn't even seem to sense that there was a need for a reset. I mean, he didn't even try to convince people no. about this stuff. It, he was just saying it, it's like, oh, well, you know, this is what it's going to do. And this is what we're going to pursue. And as if they haven't been saying it for months, as his, as his polling numbers have collapsed, yeah. that struck me as odd. Yeah. With, with the um, legislative uh, weak control, it's not really control that he has um and the uh, he, he can't he can't do anything he's going through the motions as you said but it's like the last year of a president um and uh, uh where they where they do go through the motions they know yeah. that uh, it's too late really to do anything of substance but once again biden doesn't seem aware of the realities around him or of himself, of the words he's saying. He's reading them uh, generally uh, as they're written. Um, yep. But then he calls uh, Kamala Harris um, president and um, he can't remember the names of people that he's talking to. Yep. Americans are just kind of shaking their heads. And I, and I hope it doesn't get to... Uh, Oh well, that's just that's just our senile president. Jeez, yeah, uh, there has to be some accountability. That, that's here. that's the bigotry of uh, of low expectations, yeah. right there. Yeah, uh. the, the, yeah and, and and the sympathy. I mean, yeah, uh, there was a guy on Twitter who suggested that well, you know, he has had uh, some successes, and and uh, and he is old. And he said, well, then he shouldn't be there, right? You know, I mean. <laughs> This is not a president is not something that you need to be understanding about. We need to be demanding. And this guy isn't living up to expectations. Right. Now, one of the names that he must be forgetting at the moment, this is what's known as a segue in the business, folks. Um, <laughs> one of the names that he might be forgetting of late 
is uh, the name Dr. Anthony Fauci. Um, oh, yeah. Huh. You remember him? He used to be on like all sorts of cable shows. Well, he used to be on every Sunday show, you know? I mean, every Sunday on at least one or two of them with a tape. It, <laughs> it's like, you know, obviously somebody said, go away. Uh, you're becoming a distraction from the main guy. Well, you know, I don't he's think the high, he's the highest paid guy. He gets over forty hundred grand. He gets more than the president does. Yeah, it's because he's been around for so long that his his, well, his salary uh, kept escalating, which is another reason why maybe he shouldn't be there. But it's not that he was distracting from the president. I mean, the timing on this is 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 pretty obvious, right? I mean, Anthony oh, Fauci. Yeah. Anthony Fauci's out there talking about mask mandates. It's risky to get rid of mask mandates. Don't get rid of mask mandates. You still need to mask kids in schools, even though there's no science behind that whatsoever. Um, but then when Democratic governors started realizing, you know, we're going to lose and lose really big, and they start undoing the mask mandates, Anthony Fauci's going out there and saying it's risky to do this. And suddenly Anthony Fauci disappears <laughs> off of off of all these cable shows. Now it's not that he's entirely disappeared. If you go over to the NIAID website, you can find out that um, well, Anthony Fauci was on a Bloomberg television podcast. Um, he was um, he did a um, he was um, he he sent a message to the fourth annual virtual Dominicans on the Hill, Dominicans oh. on Hill, and. Um, and he was also on an, another podcast um, for this for the Canadians, the CBC, right? Um, oh, right. Yeah. Uh, wow. And he was paying tribute. Uh, in that case, he was paying tribute to a um, to a doctor who um, healthcare advocate who who whom he knew. So I mean, that's you know that's a it's a different topic anyway. Um, and then he was at a press briefing by the White House and um, HHS public health officials, which as director of NIAID could hardly avoid. But this was a guy who was a surrogate on CNN, MSNBC, oh, yeah. NBC, ABC, CBS. As you said, practically every Sunday, this guy was out there. And all of a sudden, he's doing podcasts and local television news. And and that's it. And, and I guarantee you, it's because they did not want him out there embarrassing Democratic governors. Yeah, <laughs> and, oh, and, absolutely. And Biden ahead of the State of the Union address. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know, what, what can you say? The guy, the guy had become a lightning rod uh, for yeah. coverage, and he added to the very strong impression, which is still there, but he added to the very strong impression that Biden and his administration are just not connected with Americans or reality. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't be doing this. We can't be doing this. This is dangerous. Uh, you know, uh, we've already moved on, doctor. Uh, let's uh, catch up, mentally catch up here and, um, and go away. Well, you know, and I think that it would have been a smart move by the Biden administration when they first came into office to ask Fauci to take a much less, you know, public persona and just focus on his job at the NIAID and find a better surrogate to put on, to put on television, even if they weren't going to change the policy, which they weren't until it became 
political political albatross uh, in the middle of last month, um, at least it would have given them a chance to have a more credible face um, promoting that. I mean, and again, I mean, it's a it's a public message. You know, every White House does messaging. You know, it's naive to think otherwise. But you find people who are effective at messaging. And it was clear that Fauci had lost effect in this with the oh, with the yeah. group of people that they wanted to that that they wanted to convince, which were the unvaccinated and the people who were resisting uh, mask mandates. So you find somebody else who might be able to speak to them, maybe by first acknowledging you know, that they have some legitimate questions about these things. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, they. And in a way, this is understandable, but it is deeply regrettable. At the beginning, they acted like they knew everything. Yeah. And instead of saying honestly, I mean, it's supposed to be transparent and open, honestly saying, look, folks, this is so new. There's so much we don't know. But we're going to try to protect Americans by doing everything we can think of. Even if some of them don't work in the end, we have to try. So if you please cooperate with us, we'll tell you what we don't know. And right now it's most of it we don't know. Um, But we're gonna try with this mass thing, we're gonna try with lockdowns or whatever they wanted to say. But instead they're like, okay, well, you know, two weeks uh, to flatten the curve. Two, yeah, you know, as especially in hindsight, but even at the time, two weeks really for a brand new virus that we've never had any experience with. Uh, I don't, I don't think so. And, and at, over time, uh, people look and go, you know what? They don't know what they're talking about. So in the unlikely event that they end up talking about something that's correct or helpful. Uh, or might be right. Uh, everybody goes now. Okay, because it's the it's the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. Um, I'm not I'm not I'm not listening to him anymore. And that's when Anthony Fauci had worn off his welcome. You know, sitting next close to people at the Washington Nationals game without a mask on. Um, it's it's the hypocrisy is just overwhelming. And it, they look ignorant instead of what they're supposed to be as intelligent, honest leaders. They look ignorant and, yeah. and, and they don't have credibility and, and, and it spreads. I mean, that's a contagion in and of itself. You got Rochelle yeah, Walensky. Absolutely. You got Rochelle Walensky who can't describe the science behind mask mandates, but insists that we need to keep them in place. Um, and... It, she's she keeps reversing her positions on things, so that that's not that's not a credibility booster. Uh, they need they need somebody in there who's professional at, at message. F- first off, figuring out what their message actually is, and then get a professional in there to message it. And they've just never done that, and uh, and it shows. And and for for that matter, the Trump administration had issues with that as well. And uh, with some of the yeah. same people, with Francis Collins, with with Anthony Fauci, Walensky wasn't part of that. But even Redfield, who was at CDC at the time, had some had some issues with trying to figure out what it is that he, exactly that he wanted to say. Now that he he figured it out a lot earlier than the other two, and of course he's no longer around. 
Yeah, well, that's the arrogance of authority. Yeah. Um, I worked for a governor um, who was constantly reminding um, his senior aides, remember, we're only here temporarily uh, by the people's permission. Uh, we don't know everything, and we have to be honest about that. Um, and if anybody acted arrogantly, boy, they were gone in a heartbeat. It's just... Um, you can't you can't do that in an elective office now the feds can and joe biden can because he's around for another god help us 1049 days or whatever i said in the column yeah but but uh uh americans they want to respect their leaders but they don't like arrogance and they really really don't like hypocrisy yep Last uh, topic, we'll spend a couple minutes on this, then we'll get to the jokes of the week. Um, the Russian uh, envoy to the Iran nuclear deal talks uh, was bragging late yesterday or early today that the Iranians got much more out of this deal than they expected and that China was really helpful in, yeah. in, in, in doing this deal with the United States. Um, apparently... We're outsourcing our national security to Russia now. And I mean, it was always it was always a questionable decision to include them in these talks. But after the invasion of Ukraine, <laughs> how do you how do you how do you keep those people in place? And you've got Mikhail Ulyanov now saying, well, you know, we got Iran a much better deal than they were going to get otherwise. And apparently that's fine by Joe Biden because they're still going to they're still going to go forward with the deal, Andrew. Even though they're almost at the finish line anyway. Yeah. Uh, the Iranians. It, there's a long record of this. Remember back? Oh, maybe people don't. But back in 2009, uh, that was the famous attempted reset with Russia that Obama and Hillary Clinton tried. Yep. Um, and Obama, without even telling Eastern European countries that had agreed to this at some peril, without telling them, he killed a George W. Bush anti-missile, a missile defense system that was to go into Eastern Europe as a gesture of goodwill towards Putin because he wanted Putin to help him uh, control Iran's nuclear ambitions. Well, Putin just like, yeah, okay, thanks a lot. And um, having just months before annexed two provinces of Georgia uh, and um, the Georgia in Europe, not the one over right, here. Right, right, yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Yet, anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. And... Um, and so right away they pick up uh, the Russians pick up on on the weakness, and then uh, this went on. We don't need to go into great detail, but it went on. And then in 2011, uh, uh, Obama's uh, well, if if we see a lot of chemical weapons being moved around in Syria, that's when we have to recalculate our our um, our attitude. And then, of course, over the next year, they were moving a lot around, and then they were using them, and uh, pressure for uh, mounted on Obama to do something. And Putin, the wily son of a gun, 
he steps in and says, well, look, I will mediate and I'll get Syria to surrender all of their uh, yeah. uh, chemical weapons. So they, you know, they turned in 1,600 tons of them or whatever. And, uh, and that got Obama off the hook. But of course, it wasn't all of the chemical weapons, and they used them again. And what happened? They used them again with uh, in the first early months of, of Donald Trump. And his response was within 72 hours, he sent 59 cruise missiles in to blow up much of the air base that the attack was launched from. Yep. Now, that doesn't bring back the 1,400 Syrian civilians who, were, who died gasping and choking from the gas, but it does show a resolve and as i pointed out in last week's column uh putin didn't try any of these territorial grabs during uh trump's four years the, sure enough trump's four years are sandwiched by georgia by um annexing crimea during the obama years and now going after ukraine uh, and starting his military buildup on the ukrainian border 60 days after uh, Trump went home. Yep. So, I mean, it's just the weakness that is exuded um, through those glassy eyes of Biden's. Are, it's, I'm afraid we're going to pay a penalty. And there's, there's China that's talking more about taking over Taiwan finally. And we see North Korea launching its hypersonic missiles and testing ICBMs again. Yep. Uh, because there's no sanctions. Sanctions haven't worked, Ed. As yep. you know, uh, they just they don't. They hurt people, but the 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 guys ruling those people are not susceptible to them, and it doesn't hurt them. You know, if any Russian still has money left in the United States, he deserves to lose it. That's all. <laughs> All right. Well, with that thought in mind, don't forget to go over to redstate.com and read Andrew's latest column, A Scary Fact, President Biden is not all there and no one is doing anything. Um, how to oh. succeed in business without really trying and everything you wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask Joe Biden. Um, yeah, the uh, <laughs> speaking of which, the jokes of the week from Andrew yeah, Malcolm, the prince of well, Twitter. Well, they're all kind of, they're, they're, They've been out for a while, so I call them replays. But Conan O'Brien, he said, all the Today Show hosts went makeup free on today's program, mostly uneventful, except for the revelation that Al Roker is really a tiny Japanese woman. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Uh, and then another Conan one, he says, the restaurant chain, The Salad Works, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Analysts attribute the failure to it being a salad restaurant located in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. And finally, another Conan, he says, Starbucks has just launched a home delivery service. It's perfect for anyone too lazy to walk one block in any direction. There you go. <laughs> so that one's perfect for America. <laughs> Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> salad, salad restaurant, not so much. All right. Well, you know what else is perfect for America? The Prince of Twitter. <laughs> oh, the your segues, man. They're prize winners. And there you go. I am the king of segues. But you're the Prince of Twitter and the reason for the BrentState.com. Andrew Malcolm at AH Malcolm on Twitter and RedState.com. Where he writes. 
Andrew, thanks so much for being with us this week. You bet, Ed. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. All right. We'll be back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show, so stay tuned. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Iran got much more than it could expect, much more brags Vladimir Putin's negotiator to the talks to reinstate Barack Obama's Iran deal. Not only did Russia deliver a better deal for the Iranian terrorist financing theocrats, Mikhail Ulyanov bragged that China got in on the act too. Our Chinese friends were also very efficient and useful as co-negotiators, Ulyanov bragged. Ulyanov's declaration has all but confirmed that a national security disaster authored by Russia and China may come in days. How is this good news in any way for the U.S.? And better yet, why are we outsourcing our national security to Putin's regime and Xi Jinping? Either Biden is desperate for a foreign policy win, or he wants access to more foreign sources of oil in order to avoid the strategic benefit of expanded American production. This latter potential would explain Biden's disgraceful wooing of Nicolas Maduro, the same Venezuelan dictator who has held six American oil executives on trumped-up charges for four years. The moral compass of the Biden administration badly needs recalibration. I'm Ed Morrissey. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show, and welcome back to one of my good friends, a guy I don't talk to enough these days, Jim Garrity at National Review, nationalreview.com. Uh, just an excellent analyst, excellent blogger, and uh, a wise voice on a whole range of issues. And today we're going to be talking about the Biden administration's lack of strategic thinking on energy policy in a very, very dangerous world. Jim, welcome back. And it is good to see you again. It has been, indeed been too long, um, and I'm going to try to turn over a new leaf and not curse on your show as much as I used to. I used to be F-bomb Fridays and all that fun, but... Uh, that was fun. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm older, wiser, well, not wiser, I'm just more mature, you know, it's, uh, it's more of the same, but uh, I'll try to keep it clean because, uh, you know... Well, that's okay. You know that Dwayne Patterson sort of filled in for you on the whole F bomb right. uh, Thames thing, anyway. So, uh, but we miss we miss the rest of your voice here, and I'm so glad to get you back. And you and I are writing about the same thing this morning as we as we write as we're talking here on Monday morning, which is the um, the Biden administration's curious um, hat in hand attitude to some of the worst actors by their own definition, some of the worst actors in the world to try to make up for the Russian oil that we're apparently still buying from Vladimir Putin. And uh, you wrote about the Saudis. And um, look, I mean, I think the Saudis are a, a problematic partner, but that's not exactly how Joe Biden described them in 2019, Jim, which you, you pointed out brilliantly this morning. Yeah, so, you know, every now and then, due to my frustrations with uh, the Republican Party as it's, con as it's currently constituted, my frustrations with President Trump. Someone will say, "Why don't you go become a Democrat? Why don't you pull the full, pull a whole Jen Rubin or uh, Tom Nichols or somebody else?" And there's a lot of reasons I can't become a Democrat, but one of them is Democrats do not see the whole world clearly. And there are a lot of things that drive me crazy about the Democrats in this aspect. But one of them is their their emphasis, their insistence that when they're in power, when they're in government, 
they deploy at what's called smart power. <laughs> Maybe John Kerry is like the, the worst defender of this, but Hillary Clinton, almost every Democrat talks about, no, no, you know, you, you, when you see the world as a Republican, you see a lot of hard choices. Very often, you know, when dealing with hostile states, economic pressures, uh, the so-called, you know, new world order or global order, all these things are situations where you're not very rarely going to have a good option. And you're trying to choose the least bad option and every decision you make is going to have uh, unforeseen consequences and trade-offs and stuff like that. But not in the minds of the Democrats. In the minds of the Democrats, we can always work with our allies. We can always get tough with our enemies, but we never have to go to war. You know, it's always this, you know, don't worry, we're going to perfectly, you know, calibrate this. Biden is a particularly bad offender at this. And throughout the last, you know, year and change, I've been talking about all the different times on the campaign trail, Biden made something sound very easy. And then, of course, he gets into office and it turns out to be much tougher. The one that, we, you know, that I wrote about this morning is that back on the, in a debate, November 2019, Biden was like, we're going to get tough with the Saudis. We're going to make them the pariah state that they are. Now, if they are a pariah state, you don't have to make them a pariah state. But right. Biden is speaking off the cuff. I'll just I'll, I'll let that one slide. But the idea was very much that he was going to get tough with Mohammed bin Salman. And that, you know, and you know, famously, Trump had not uh, had any type of response, much of a significant response to the, you know, murder and dismemberment of Khashoggi. Uh, the Saudis have always been a difficult and challenging ally. They've always been terrible in terms of human rights and things like that. We needed their oil. And as far as, you know, they were the, uh, they have Mecca and Medina within their territory. And the attitude of most American administrations, Republican and Democrat, has always been, look, we would never choose these guys to be in charge, but they're probably better than anyone who would replace them. And there was always this challenging you know, on and off alliance. But yeah, yeah, dismembering a guy who had a, a green card in the consulate in in, uh, in Istanbul, that's a pretty, that was a pretty big provocation. That's a, that's a big one, yeah. That's a big, that's, that's really tough to overlook and not act like it. And I remember at the time, I think it was even, you know, um, Lindsey Graham and, and lots of other Republicans like, look, we have to send some sort of signal. And I kind of felt like, it, I, I think if I, I'm remembering this off the top of my head. So if I get this wrong, but I, I believe at the time I said like, you got to say to the Saudis, we're putting you in the timeout box for an, a year. Maybe in a year we can go back to renormalization. Maybe in a year we can start to thaw things again. But you went too far. We've got to do something to demonstrate, no, we don't approve this. Um, Trump really didn't go ahead and do that. And Biden made it sound like, boy, we're really going to come down on them like, like a ton of bricks. Then Biden gets into office and he originally said, we're going to cut off all, our, all arms sales. And then he got into office and said, ah, we're going to cut off some arms sales, a few, the <laughs> ones that are, the ones that we know are connected to Yemen because the Saudis were indeed using our weapons in a pretty indiscriminate manner in, in their, uh, the battle in Yemen against Iranians. Um, and so all of a sudden, all these things that look really simple on the campaign trail look much harder once you're in the Oval Office. And so people who have been really upset about Khashoggi already felt like Biden had uh, sold out or, or kind of wimped out on really confronting the Saudi regime. Then oil prices begin increasing throughout the year 2021. And now we're in a circumstance where Axios is reporting uh, that Biden is willing to make a visit to Saudi Arabia and metaphorically come hat in hand and meet with Bin Salman and basically kind of say to the Saudis, hey, all is forgiven. What's a little dismemberment amongst friends? Uh, happens to the best of us. We're not going <laughs> to judge you. We're all going to get along. Hey, how about some more oil? Now, we can argue about whether that's a good idea. And we can argue about whether um, we want to import more oil from Saudi Arabia and whether like maybe in the end, as frustrating as it is, better bin Salman than whoever would replace him. But at the same time, we 
two years ago, we were energy independent, right? You know, right. In addition to every other aspect of places where we could drill, shale, fracking, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I wrote about this years ago, Ed, is that um, uh, off the coast of California, roughly 50 gallons of oil per day spurt forth from the ocean seafloor naturally, right? Right. They don't do any more drilling. They shut down a lot of the platforms out there, but Mother Nature is basically spinning oil at us <laughs> into the ocean. And heaven forbid we went down there and, you know, I mean, you know, one, we could put a cap on it and try to stop that leak, or we could, you know, put a pipe down there and get it and use it. Boy, wouldn't that be terrific? But uh, hey, it's not like California needs gasoline these days. Right? No, no, not at all. Only $7 a gallon, at least at one station. So They're only having three brownouts a day now in, in, yeah, in California. Yeah. They're down to three brownouts a day in California. So that's 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 a good sign. Uh, you know, at the same time too, Jim, while they're, while they're sucking up to the Saudis, the pariah state, right, that yeah. uh, Joe Biden had declared, uh, they're also going down to Venezuela to talk to Nicolas Maduro about buying more Venezuelan crude. Now, Venezuela does sit on a legit, massive sea of oil. It also happens to be really dirty oil. I mean, it, it, part of the issue for Venezuela is that hardly anybody can refine that stuff except themselves and the Americans. And they've managed to arrest everybody who could <laughs> refine it in Venezuela. Um, and at the same time, by the way, and Jazz is the one who reminded me of this. He's on vacation this week, but he's the one who re reminded me of this, is that at present, uh, Maduro is holding six American oil executives in prison <laughs> and has for the last four years. Uh, they lured them down there in 2017 to talk about, you know, restarting Sitgo's operations down there and arrested them on, you know, trumped up corruption charges. Now Biden's going to ask Maduro to... Uh, to become close to the United States while he's holding basically American oil executives hostage down there. I mean, this is this is not strategic strength, Jim. But not only that, I, I think you know, I think it was someone else on Twitter. So forgive me for not attributing this correctly, but upon the observation, the observation, you would think the Biden team had never heard of the concept of leverage, right? Because right, if you're Venezuela, Russia is not coming to your rescue anytime soon. Russia is about to become this giant economic pariah. Uh, their economy is tanking, as we've all heard. You know, that I don't think they're supposed to stop open the stock market in, in Moscow until Thursday. <laughs> you know, like when, when yeah, maybe. Um, you know, when when your uh, when your stock market is closed for the entirety of Mardi Gras, that's a bad sign. That's that's you know a sign that's all going to drop like a stone and stuff. So if you're Venezuela, this is when the U.S. should be going to Venezuela, and if you, maybe you give them the carrot and you say, look, you release our guys, <laughs> maybe we can you know start doing business again, but also. Russia is not going to come rescue you. I don't know if you can count on the Chinese to come rescue you. You guys are in dire straits. Your people are, you've got oil, but you can't refine it. You've got, your people are starving. You've got all of this unrest down there. We can, you know, we can do business with you, but you got to start making, you know, you got to play ball with us and you got to start making some concessions we want. We are interested in having some of your oil, but, and you know, as you said, there's only, you know, two countries that can really take the, uh, have the capacity to refine it. Oh, by the way, wouldn't it be nice if we built more refineries in this country? Since other than like, was there one in California? Because otherwise, we haven't built one in like thirty years in this country. Uh, there may have been one that was on the books for California. I'm not sure if they built it, and I'm not yeah. sure that they be they'd be able to in the current yeah. political. We have climate. expanded, yeah, we've expanded capacity to existing ones, but we yes. really haven't taken it. You know, built a new one from scratch in thirty years. 
because they're ugly. You know, it looks like I grew up in New Jersey, right? You drive New Jersey Turnpike, you see oil refined. They're not pretty. I'm not going no. to lie to you. I grew up next. I grew up almost just down the road from one in um, in La Mirada, California. I mean, in Santa Fe Springs, they had the, you know the big outgassing flame that you could see yeah. for miles, and yeah, you could smell off. it all. Yeah, 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 you could smell it for you could smell it all day long. No, I, I'm I'm familiar. <laughs> it's it's not pleasant, but on the other hand, one of the upsides was, you know, it's been a while since I've checked it, but for a while in New Jersey, it was a little bit cheaper than the others than in surrounding states. Right. Some of that was a tax issue. New York used to tax the bejesus out of it, and I, I assume they still have. Um, but the flip side was that, you know, the more, dis the further you live from an oil refinery, the more it costs to get the uh, gas to you, to your local gas station. So New Jersey generally had slightly cheaper. So there was an upside to having uh, oil refineries in your neck of the woods. So, you know, again, if we wanted, like, we, we talked a good game about energy independence, but it was interesting, you know, think back to George W. Bush. This is, this is a sign of how long you and I have been doing this. Right. You know, America is addicted to oil. I'm doing the Bill Clinton thing. It's not really that, you know, Bush was more. America, yeah, I, no, 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 I was, America is addicted to oil. <laughs> and, and the irony is, is that, you know, we, by the, you know, Trump years, we had actually gotten there. Now, you know, that wasn't all Trump, although it certainly he had, lifted a whole bunch. I don't think that, I think the Obama administration would like to take credit for it. I don't think they really can, but I think you can point out, look, spike in prices makes investment in new oil fields worthwhile, new technologies, fracking, things like that. And you know, the US, hang on, US and the US oil industries, companies basically said, you know what? We have a lot that's here. We don't have to ship it in on oil tankers all the way from halfway around the world. We can get it here, we can develop it here, and we can sell it here. And by 2019, 2020, the U.S. was a net energy exporter. Right. Then Biden got into office. And all of a sudden, now, you know, like, it's not just what he did, which because it probably didn't have an immediate cost. We, we didn't see oil prices, uh, gas prices spiking in early 2001. Some of it was reduced uh, demand. Pandemic was still going on. People were just starting to get vaccinated, stuff like that. Right, right. Um, you know, this, there's a, there is a tendency on our side to act like there's some sort of lever in the Oval Office that controls gas prices. And it's not just that, right? A lot of it's demand-based. People drive more in summer. They go on summer vacations. They drive around. Demand gets higher. Uh, a lot of places, they have a winter fuel and they have a summer fuel. Yes. And that transition process can cause prices to spike because places have to transition over the, the refineries and, you know, the, the, the requirements and things like that. So that stuff, you know, it, it's not simply one. U.S. federal policy isn't the only thing. But having said that, between Keystone Pipeline and not really more on federal lands, it was a very clear signal of the Biden administration to the oil and natural gas industry. We hate you. We're not here to help you. We're going to make everything as tough as possible for you. And we're going to make all these cars electric. And don't ask where the electricity comes from. <laughs> you know, it, it, what you're talking about here is there's, there's two different ways in which oil, which gas prices come from, right? One is futures markets. The other is spot markets. Mm -hmm. Spot markets are very volatile. But what we're talking about here is the impacts on the futures markets from policy changes in the White House. And those policy changes started famously on day one because Joe Biden wanted to emphasize that, you know, we're going to get rid of the fossil fuels. So he signed a bunch of EOs that restricted uh, future exploration and extraction on federal lands. It didn't restrict anything that was already in process. But the futures market looked at that and said, well, we know which way this is going to go, and we're now going to start pricing this in terms of reduced American production, because that is exactly what Joe Biden's been promising, is reduced 
American production and eventually, you know, reducing it down to as close to zero as he can get. Um, that's a rational response to this. And the rational, the, the rational action to take now, if you want to lower prices, is to roll back those restrictions. Even Larry Summers, right? Clinton administration, Obama administration. Oh, you mean guy. the inflation prophet, the man who, yes. Cassandra, the man who warned us, the man who kept saying, there's going to be terrible inflation if you keep throwing around checks full of money. But yes, that's Larry Summers. That, that Larry Summers. Yeah. Just in case anybody okay. was wondering, you yeah. know, thank you, Jim, for clarifying. That was the Larry what Summers. What does Larry about. Summers guy know about economics, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing at all. He's even he was saying you've got to roll back the regulation on the oil and gas industry if you want to lower inflation in, in the short run and in the long run, you've got to lower the price of fuel because fuel is a force multiplier. The higher fuel goes, the higher the costs are at every stage of the distribution chain. And that is, that's a, that's a compounding force on inflation, but even beyond inflation, we're talking about strategic thinking here. We had strategic leverage over Vladimir Putin, maybe the only strategic leverage that we actually really had over Vladimir Putin was keeping oil prices low so they didn't have the money to do this. And it's not just, it's not just um, uh, Russia, it's not just um, Venezuela, it's also Iran. They're talking about now buying more oil from Iran to replace yeah. Russian oil. And Iran is a serious rogue threat. It's insane to be going after uh, Iranian oil at this point. The only way that this makes sense, it really doesn't make any sense logistically, but if you are Joe Biden and you see U.S. domestic energy production, particularly in oil and natural gas, as like the worst possible thing. If you decide, okay, we're going to import more oil from Iran and Venezuela, at some point in the future, a year from now, two years from now, you can say, okay, we've had enough, our oil prices are back down again, and you guys are still the SOBs you always were, you're still human rights abuses, you're still sponsors of terrorism, that's it, we're not importing your oil anymore. Right, you could do that. If you set up U.S. domestic energy production, that's much harder to quote unquote turn off. Right, right. It, you know, once once you start a dwell a, a, a well drilling and all that kind of stuff, that process is in there. And you know, the other thing also I think observation is that Americans like having domestic energy production. Republicans have been calling at it for a long time. Democrats have been saying, no, no, solar panels and wind that can solve everything. Well, you know, and of course what we're learning and what Europe has learned really brutally tough is that. Oil uh, that uh, solar pow power and wind power, as nice as they are, are not sufficient to meet your energy needs now, and it's probably not going to be sufficient for a good long while. The flip side of this also is that it's not—it's not that the oil prices were the only reason Russia invaded. I think Vladimir Putin has had a this is, this is off colors like has had a hard on for Ukraine for a quite long time. Oh yeah, Basically, definitely. Yeah, during the Russian Empire, we are we're, make America make Russia great again. You know. This idea of we are you know, the holy roots, right? The Russian people. I had this post that I wrote on Friday that I, I finally kind of feel like I, I cracked something in, in Putin's thinking. In the there's a certain kind of philosophy in Russia. Um, it's quasi-religious. The idea that like the Russian people are holy it ties into the Russian Orthodox Church. And the interesting is if you live in another character, another country, in Russia, in, in what is you know, what is legally Ukraine, but you're a Russian speaker. You worship at the Russian Orthodox Church. You are ethnically Russian. Then you are Russian in the eyes of Vladimir Putin, and that he has a duty, a duty to protect you. He has a responsibility to take care of you by coming over and debating and bombing you. Um, you know, <laughs> they're okay. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's fuzzy thinking, but the idea that Putin yeah. is on a quasi-religious, um, as I was trying to characterize it to somebody, it's very hard to tell where the Blues Brothers 
we're on a mission from God, philosophy stops, and where it is my destiny, it is my fate, I am called by history, that this is my, this is my purpose in life, right? And that, that right. explains it. Um, but it was, I think, you know, that's a, a big primary one. But the fact that energy prices have been very high, certainly probably made Putin feel like he had maximum leverage over the West, and that he might not have it two years from now, three years from now, five years from now. And this all assumes, of course, that Putin's not dying of cancer or something. Right. You know, and that, that means that certainly could be part of the issue there, too, because he's, uh, you know, the you know, there's lots of different things that factor into this. And I completely agree with you that this has been his mission all along, because I've been arguing all along, as have you, that Putin yeah. is not a Democrat. He's a small D Democrat. He's not a new he's not a. Uh, a world order kind of guy. This is a Russian imperialist. He's a former KGB yeah. colonel who turns out to be a terrible general, by the way. Um, but he's a Russian imperialist. He wants to put the band back together only without the Soviet label on it. And um, and, and in that sense, he's no different than Russians have been for centuries. This is a, a common thread in Russian history. The Soviet version of it was just a version of it. Um, so yeah, my, my point though is that the high oil prices was an enabling factor. Yeah. He he had a lot more money. He had a lot more capital. He could afford to burn some of it, political capital as well as actual financial capital. Um, and he's still able to get that money because we won't sanction <laughs> those sales. Um, in part because Europe is addicted to it, and they're not going to be able to disconnect from it anytime soon. Yeah, and that's like one of the things that's extraordinarily frustrating about this is that. Um, you and I are roughly the same age. You might be a little uh, older than me, Ed, but not by, you know, we're, we're both old enough to remember the Cold War. Right? Yes. And so even if I even if I didn't do the ducking under my desk for, for air raid drills, sort of, I'm not a baby boomer, I'm Generation X. I remember watching, you know, the, the, the day after, right? And America with the K, right? the, the, the Reagan era chapters of the Cold War. And so I my attitude is always like, I don't, you know, I want to say I'd never trust Russians, but I want to say that I'll never probably trust the Russian government that much. And I think you, you you put your finger on something, which is that you look back through Russian history. One, they've always had this this um, on the one hand this boy this I would say boastfulness this this we are a great empire we are fan you know we are this this pride and also I think the flip side insecurity because they looked over at Europe at the great you know the British Empire the uh, the French all the great cities of Europe and this insecurity this sense of like to them we are the backwater to them we are the primitive you know. Uh, uh, we're, we're not we're not as sophisticated as them. That's why they've always taken great pride in their high arts, Barishnikov, you know, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. That's why there's this, there's there's enormous pride, and also the flip side of that coin is enormous insecurity. Well, you, you get invaded by Napoleon, you get invaded by Hitler. They have this attitude of well, we need this barrier of countries. We need this, everything between say Germany and us needs to be our defensive wall, and that to do that, we need that to be our, in our control. Now, I, I can sympathize that to a certain extent, but we can point out Ukraine wasn't going to invade anybody. Right. Poland's not going to invade anybody. The Baltic states aren't going to, like, there's this entire, like, it's entirely this paranoia. Uh, now, I think what's much more realistic and likely was that Putin looked at what Ukraine was turning into. And we should have no, you know, they had corruption problems. They right. had, and it, and it wasn't just Hunter Biden. You know, like they, <laughs> even, even the guys we like probably had some dirty, you know, habits over there. Um, you know, Ukraine was not a perfect country. The Baltics, Poland, all of Eastern Europe, they've all got their flaws, but none of them are going to be this grand military conquest going out and conquering their neighbors or anything like that. But what they are is thriving and becoming more and more European, more and more 
I'm going to call it the European idea of free market. We Americans might say that's, you know, that's pretty socialist for our taste, but nonetheless, right, yeah. know, um, more and more uh, freedom of expression, more and more politically democratic. And as a result of like that, is that a threat to Russia? No, that's a threat to Putin. And that, you know, the, 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 you know, we're, I keep coming back to Napoleon in this conversation, or is it the, the state is me? I am the state. Yeah, you know, L'état like, c'est moi. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I knew you'd have the French pronunciation there. Uh, there. <laughs> um, is this the, the, in the end, Ukraine was no threat to Russia, but Ukraine becoming a thriving democracy was very potential, very strongly potentially a threat to Putin. And at some point, the Russians say, "Why are we doing this? Why we 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 have as many we could live that happy middle class lifestyle. We could live like Europeans." And I think if there's any, you know, potential long run good op- outcome of this, is that the Russian people who are going to suffer intensely from the uh, sanctions we're inflicting and being cutting off the world, like. At the beginning of all this, I was and I was very much like, ah, I want to hit these guys hard. But I remember after World War One, let's let's not, you know, how much do we want to deliberately impoverish a country that's got four thousand five hundred nuclear warheads? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We spent a lot of the post Cold War years worrying about somebody selling a nuke to, you know, Islamist terrorists or somebody else like that. Now, after seeing all the, you know, like I, I'm now at the point where, like, okay, screw these guys. Let's let yeah. Let, let's screw them. Let's 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 squeeze them. Let's impoverish these guys. The Russians have to learn there's a consequence to allowing this kind of maniacal autocrat to take control of your country. Right. And if you guys have, you know, if this means a decade of impoverishment, that means a decade of impoverishment. We'll let you get wealthy again, but it may involve, you know, either denuclearization or some sort of long-term step to ensure that this kind of, you know, outright Russian imperial disaster does not happen again. And, you know, God only knows how long that'll take, Red. Yep. Well, Jim Garrity of NationalReview.com. I think that's a a wise spot in which to uh, in on, which FSB to conclude. Online too. Is it the FSB? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, tell them we all say hi over here, Jim. Yeah. They they knew we were listening anyway. But yeah. <laughs> it's Zoom. It's Zoom. What can you do? Jim right. Garrity, NationalReview.com. At Jim Garrity, by the way, on Twitter as well. Go follow him on Twitter. Does great work. Jim, it's been too long. It won't be as long the next time. I guarantee it. This is a blast. Great great to see you, Ed. Take care. Stay safe, too. You do as well. We'll be back with more from The Ed Morrissey Show.